Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Hallie Epstein, and I'm a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Policy and a second-year law student at Yale. I'm in the studio today with Professor Jed Purdy from Duke Law School. At Duke, Professor Purdy teaches property, constitutional law, and environmental law. His scholarship concentrates on the theory and history of property law and the place of public values in the private economy, in addition to American progressivism and environmental politics. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Professor Purdy has written a new book, The American Environmental Imagination. Jed, your book explores the history of environmentalism and how environmental history is in fact an integral part of American history. What is the role that racism, xenophobia, and obtuse privilege have played in American environmental imagination, and what dangers might these show in the ideas we still hold today? Mm. So the history of American environmental ideas, when you start poking around in it, is much um, closer to some of the ugliest and most troubling parts of American history than environmentalists like to think now. So everyone knows that Teddy Roosevelt was both a big conservationist and a big imperialist who thought that we should carry the white man's burden to the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Cuba, um, and that his racial attitudes were probably typical of his time, which is to say not very enlightened by our standards. But the history is actually at points much more disturbing than that. So to name just a couple of figures who are important in the history of conservation, Teddy Roosevelt's forester, uh, Gifford Pinchot, who really built the National Forest Service and was the most important spokesperson of conservation, which was the early 20th century version of environmental thought and the basis of a lot of Roosevelt's domestic policy, both his forestry and irrigation, his sort of, you could say, proto-environmental policy that helped build the parks, for example, but was also the template for his thinking about issues like antitrust and labor law and public health, because he saw those issues, like the management of forestry, as about governing these complex social and natural systems in a way that would benefit everyone. So, Pinchot, like Roosevelt, and like a lot of their contemporaries, carried that thought over to governing the resource of human beings rationally and for public benefit. And that meant eugenics. Uh, Pinchot was a representative to the International Eugenics Congress a couple of times in the 1920s. Um, So were um, members of Roosevelt's immediate circle and the very central early conservation organization that he and Pinchot and Aldo Leopold, though I don't think Leopold was to the same extent part of this, um, were all involved in something called the Boone and Crockett Club. Um, To be a member of the Boone and Crockett Club, you effectively had to be a wealthy white guy. You also had to have killed three um, large male specimens from the seven major big game species (laughs) in North America. 
and you had to have done so honorably. Um, so um, these guys were um, almost to a man of the view that eugenics was part of being rational and progressive. So there was a sort of deep failure of respect for human diversity, deep failure of humility, deep failure of respect for human individuality that was connected with their idea of governing nature and society rationally. So there's one thing. Now, in that organization, the Boone and Crockett Club, was the individual who was probably single-handedly responsible for the movement to save the Redwoods in California. And one of the most important advocates for uh, national game preserves, the things the Fish and Wildlife Service now runs, Um, and generally as important a figure as some of the ones who are better remembered today. His name was Madison Grant. Um, And part of the reason we don't talk about Madison Grant so much is that he wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race, which was Adolf Hitler's favorite book. It was Hitler's favorite book because it told a racialized history of humanity that was all about the decline of the great Anglo-Saxons and the rise of the lesser races, um, who were everyone else. And what uh, what should we make of, of this? Um, I... I think a part of the problem is that it's, it is more than random. I think a figure like Madison Grant, and it's very much someone like Roosevelt, actually, were attracted to pure nature, wild nature, extreme and beautiful places, and the task of preservation, partly because they had a feeling that the world they lived in, both the social world and the natural world, was under attack by forces that were making it less pure, less beautiful, more crowded, and uh, more confusing. And so resisting environmental change and resisting social change, being environmental purists and indulging in the kind of terrible fantasy of racial purity we're part of the same psychology. They're part of the same cultural formation for some of these guys. Um, so this is the history. Um, and in some ways, the history even comes forward into the early formulations of popular ecology um, as late as the 1950s and early 1960s. So we know that two of the books that really brought the ecological vision of nature into popular consciousness were Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac, which is published in 1949, and Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which is published between 1960 and 1962. But at the same time as Sand County Almanac, an equally popular book at the time came out called Our Crowded Planet. Um, Actually, I think the book I'm thinking of is Our Plundered Planet. He also had a book called Our Crowded Planet by Fairfield Osborne. Fairfield Osborne was the son of one of the most important um, eugenicists and the nephew of another of the most important eugenicists in Teddy Roosevelt's circle. And his view was that we had to do something about population because we were taxing the world's resources. And he made this argument in a deeply ecological way that had resonances with both both Carson and Leopold. But he also um, 
and this is actually evident in some of the in some of the writings that the Osbournes did in the 50s, thought that talking about the problem of population and resources was a way ultimately of getting back to the issue of eugenics, getting back to the issue of what they called genetic quality. So it seems to me that here too, there's something going on where people sense that the world they love, including the natural world, is under threat of destruction and erosion and corruption and pollution, is connected culturally and psychologically with a feeling that um, the social world is too complicated, too diverse, um, too crowded, and when you come down to it, that they think it's full of the wrong kinds of people, um, that it's getting muddied up and dirtied up. Um, and all of this, I think, should lead environmentalists at least to think seriously about what's behind our attractions to the pristine and wild and perfect places, about the tendency to be nostalgic, to try to recapture a sort of perfect world that's lost, whether it's the world of untouched wilderness or whether it's the world of a kind of agricultural ideal. I mean, I, to grab that example for a second, I... Um, feel attached to, and in some ways in both a product and in a limited fashion, a part of the new attention to and care for food systems and land care and agricultural practice. But I think there as elsewhere, we need to ask ourselves whether there's an element of nostalgia and an element of thinking about how to make the world nice for people like us, whoever we happen to be, without thinking systematically about... Um, how many sorts of people and how many sorts of needs there are in the world, um, and whether the kind of purity and clarity and even a certain nostalgia of environmental issues formulated some ways can be a way of getting away from those. Well, thank you for sharing that important history. I think it's something that many environmentalists, myself included, are not as aware of as we should be, and understanding it is in part and parcel of moving forward in the environmental movement, reimagining it, understanding what our values are today. So thank you again for that. I think that's exactly right. I, I think none of it is to condemn the history or the present of environmental values, but to understand that like other parts of American history, they are involved in the best and the worst of what we've been capable of, and we can learn something from both. What other lessons does the history of environmental politics have to teach us about the domestic political action we can or should expect from Congress and the United States president? Well, maybe we could take um, an issue like climate change, because in some ways it's the issue that brought me to thinking about the history of environmental politics. Um, I mentioned earlier that I started teaching about it and thinking about it even as a law student, but I started writing on it five or six years ago um, because I was reading and teaching the law school and policy literature about climate change. And there was a kind of recurrent refrain in that literature, which is that smart people should recognize that these are issues we're not likely to do anything about. And we're not likely to succeed in doing anything about them because if you look at the kind of people we are, we're just susceptible to collective action problems, failure to solve um, problems we create when 
Um, all of our actions are characterized by externalities, opportunities to free ride. This is a kind of classic formulation in which climate change is a huge tragedy of the commons, in which each person will individually act in a way that's selfishly rational but is harmful for the larger whole. So I got really tired of reading that. And I wanted to understand whether there was something productive in my impatience. And I decided the answer was that climate change is the kind of problem that if we were to, I don't know if I should even say solve it, but engage it in a productive way, the very act of doing that would make us different kinds of people. We wouldn't be the same as when we started. And then I started to ask, is that just an idealistic thought? Is that just saying, well, if we were different, we wouldn't have this problem in the same way? But I think one thing history shows is that People do, people have engaged problems collectively at the level of conscience and politics and culture that have changed them, and they've emerged different people from when they started. The history of race, the history of gender, the history of sexuality in the U.S. are three easy examples, not uncomplicated, but it's straightforward that we're not the same people we once were, and we changed ourselves partly by engaging those issues. And then I realized the history of environmental politics and environmental attitudes is also that. The laws that we passed in the 1970s to preserve endangered species would have been unimaginable and unconscionable to people who in the 1820s and 1830s thought it was a kind of moral mission to exterminate predators because predators were a kind of satanic principle that um, worked against the mission we had on the continent, which was to make it bloom and make it productive as a kind of wall-to-wall pastoral garden. Um, The decision to preserve wilderness, which we made legislatively in 1964, and now more than 100 million acres are congressionally protected from any kind of permanent development or extraction, um, would have been bizarre, and it would have been anathema to people who in the 1840s, 1850s, could only describe wilderness as something negative that needed to be transformed and changed. So we've developed in the past and learned to act on really new ideas about nature. And um, I think we have to ask where the potential in climate change is for a similar kind of politics that actually transforms our attitudes, rather than assuming that we're just going to continue to have the ones we have now. One area you seem to have a passion for is food and agriculture. So what can we learn from the history of the food movement specifically that might inform climate change debate? So the food movement is really interesting here. Um, It's interesting because, for one, it's an issue that I think most of us would say now has a major place at the um, cultural table, if not the political table, right? Oh, I I didn't. The pun was not intended. Um, of environmental conversation. Um, And for most of the history of environmental politics and environmental thinking, food systems have been basically invisible. Um, They just haven't been part of the story. Thoreau thought farmers were the problem. They were sort of boring and conformist. John Muir didn't care about farmers. Early Sierra Club people didn't care about farmland. They cared about wilderness and pristine land. In fact, in some ways, the definition of wilderness is an area where you can't find anything to eat, or at least you can't grow anything. It's sort of um, 
separated from the basic metabolic relation between people and the natural world that the food system represents. Um, but starting in some ways with the writing of Wendell Berry and with a lot of experiments that individuals and families and communities have undertaken to try to grow and distribute and process food in ways that are more ecologically sensitive, more ecologically aware. A whole new way of valuing the work of agriculture, the work of food, has come into being. And it's become this great source of satisfaction in people's lives. That kind of work has moved from being a burden to be overcome and avoided to a real privilege and even joy to be to be embraced. It's exactly the sort of thing, actually, that Barry called for in The Unsettling of America in 1977. So I think a part of what's happening there is that people have found a way to make ecological ideas concrete in their own lives. The idea of being connected to and continuous with ecosystems and other living things. Um, and environmental ideas are always much more powerful when they're not only abstract, but when there's a way to make them vivid in your own practice, in your own life. So the question for climate politics, in a way, is whether there, whether we will find or develop cultural practices that can make it as concrete at the level of personal identity as the food movement has made um, the idea of ecology in people's lives. Do you have any advice for young aspiring farmers? For young aspiring farmers, um, talk to old farmers. Don't believe everything they say, but definitely talk to them. The pe- I was raised by people who were really in the first generation of neo-traditional farming, and they learned so much from the old farmers of Appalachia um, who were not being replaced in many cases by their own kids. And we're so happy to have these young people here who wanted to know how to cut hay with a scythe or how to butcher a hog or, or where, what food you could gather in the woods. Um, yeah, and don't get isolated. The wonderful thing about it now is, is how much community there is in it because country life can be so lonely. I think we have time for one final question. Where should we as future lawyers, policymakers, and scientists, and even academics, be focusing our, eth- our efforts to promote our ethics and values in decision-making? So I think that I don't have anything to say about that that's one-size-fits-all. Um, my sense about this question in this time is that people have to work in areas that nourish, that sustain them enough that they can stand to work and even enjoy working there for a long time, even if they lose. And that has a lot to do with figuring out where the intersection is of what you care about, love enough, fear enough, that you can work on it because it matters, and what you enjoy in the sort of day-to-day craft process that's involved, whether that's brief writing or scientific research or speaking and advocacy or whether it's actually having your hands in some kind in some kind of dirt. I think it can be so taxing for people to work on something they truly care about 
because the losses are so personal and the ways that other people may not understand or be indifferent is um, it's hard to accept it as mere mere difference. It's a, it's a kind of affront. Um, so you need to take enough reward out of the work to keep you going, even if you turn out to live in decades where we're mostly trying to control the damage as much as as much as getting to make things better. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Again, Professor Purdy's book is titled The American Environmental Imagination. Thank you. Thank you, Hallie.